Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be the second part of a two-part series on the weird history of electricity. Uh, different than the history of electricity you might have learned about in school with the, the invention of the various different technologies. Uh, here we wanted to focus on the, the strange social and psychic undercurrents, if you will, of the uh, of the development of electricity in human society and knowledge. Yeah, kind of the midlife crisis of uh, human culture's uh, uh, understanding and attitudes towards electricity as it goes from pure mystery to the mundane. So if you haven't heard part one, uh, before you listen to this episode, you should probably go back and listen yes. to part one. Uh, but if you don't care about coming in in the middle of a conversation then and you're here, then that's fine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the episodes that we discuss are going to, you know, they can stand on their own. But uh, we do highly encourage you to check out part one. OK, so I'm going to start in a kind of counterintuitive place for this journey of uh, of psychic electricity. And that's with the English writer and poet Thomas Hardy. Oh. So you probably remember him from uh, from writing extremely depressing novels that you had to read in high school. You know, The Return of the Native, Mayor of Casterbridge. Mm-hmm. What, what did you have to read in high school? Ooh, I guess it was Casterbridge. That's the one that I feel like I'm most familiar with. Uh, yeah. Or, or you might have read his poems like The Darkling Thrush, which is one of my favorites. And it contains these lines. This is one of the stanzas of The Darkling Thrush. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlint. His crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry. And every spirit upon the earth seemed fervorless as I. Well, so it's, it's kind of bleak. Yeah, but <laughs> so he's talking about something that happened in the past century. Yeah, uh, I think one of the early names of this poem before it was called the Darkling Thrush was something like the the corpse of the past century or something like that. Uh, and the, this was written around 1900. Uh, and that, you know, the end of the 1800s. So, so what happened? What happened to our fervor during the century he spoke of? Uh, I, I don't know exactly what dissipation of spirit Hardy was referring to, but he, here's a stab that, that I'd like to think uh, had something to do with it. It might have had something to do with electricity. And so there's a great Thomas Hardy quote that is it's quoted in one of the papers we're using as a source on this episode, which is uh, Life, Death and Electricity by Nicholas Ruddick. And this was a great paper, by the way. Yeah, this was really good. And it's uh, I think this one's available out there for everyone to read. Yeah. And uh, it, it chronicles uh, a lot about the developments of electricity in the late 1800s leading up to the execution of William Kimmler, which we started the last episode with. And we'll get to later in this one. But. It tells the story of how Hardy was, quote, attending an electrically lit evening church service in London in May 1890. Mm. Uh, And what was illuminated was the outdatedness of the old beliefs. And Hardy wrote about it, quote, everything looks like the modern world. The electric light and the old theology seem strange companions. And the sermon was as if addressed to the native tribes of primitive simplicity and not to the 19th century English. Uh, now, putting aside the, you know, racist and colonial assumptions of the metaphor Hardy uses there, that is an interesting observation in line with what we observed in the techno religion for the masses episode. Yeah. There is something, uh, though, though it has often been surmounted by various cults and, and people of varying theologies. There is an inherent tension for some reason between technology and religious belief. Yeah. Because especially with an old religious belief, there's often that sense that it's set in stone uh-huh. and, and this is the, uh, you know, th- this is the truth that is buried in the earth for all future generations to live by. And and what gives it its power is its ancient otherness. Right. And then what do you do when a new otherness enters the picture? When when suddenly we we know more about the what was magic in the past, when we know we can explain electricity or at least harness it in ways that we had no ability to uh, in the days that the tablets were uh, were, were carved. Yeah. And so uh, an observation that Ruddick makes in his paper is that he's commenting that by the 1890s, as electricity came more and more into our lives, you know, you, you, you might have hundreds of different interactions with electrical appliances and services 
times throughout the day. It was becoming increasingly difficult, he says, to talk about transcendental matters in electrical terms. But before we get to the sort of the death of the sacred ghost of electricity in the uh, the the sort of mundane ravages of modern life, I want to go back to a period where there was still much weirdness and wonder to be had. Yeah, we're still um, we're still in the time period of the the experiments uh, discussed previously, where we're beginning to understand electricity a little bit. We're we're exploring its properties. We're also exploring the uh, you know its dramatic side, its entertaining side, as well as its uh, its dangerous and lethal side. Absolutely. So, uh, I want to talk about a scientist who has been largely forgotten despite the the fact that he was one of the most famous and celebrated scientists of the entire world in his day and his influence on modern scientific thought is just absolutely incalculable and that that is the scientist Alexander von Humboldt now i recently read a book about alexander von humboldt it was uh, the invention of nature alexander von humboldt's new world by andrea wolf this is a great book by the way but uh, it, it talks about this strange fact that he's been mostly forgotten about despite the fact that he was uh, responsible for example for the scientific concept of ecology thinking about natural environments not as sort of a uh, a god established domain of unchanging character but as complex dynamic systems that vary with climate and resources and are subject to dramatic change even by altering a small variable if it's a if it's sort of a keystone variable but i want to communicate the spirit of how scientific experiments in animal electricity were continuing uh, in the uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s by looking at a couple of events in Alexander von Humboldt's life. So in the 1790s, Alexander von Humboldt actually became friends with the rock star German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Ah. And Goethe was the poet who, in his version of Faust, wrote, what dazzles for the moment spins its spirit. What's genuine shall posterity inherit. I always like that sentiment, and I think it also sort of applies to uh, some of the showmanship about electricity that we oh, yes. uh, mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, very much so, because, I mean, at this point, electricity has been a show, and electricity has often involved uh, uh, dead animals <laughs> yeah. uh, to varying degrees. So so keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, but Goethe wasn't just a poet. In his day, he was also a really dedicated scientist. And one year in the 1790s, uh, about three years after uh, von Humboldt and, and Goethe had first visited, they spent time together in a city called Jena to talk through scientific ideas and conduct this long series of experiments on animal electricity, which Humboldt was writing a book about at the okay. time. So he was interested in that uh, that that animal electricity, that that idea that there was a, a specific intrinsic electrical system to the body. Yeah. And uh, as we discussed in the last episode, it was later proved not true that animal electricity is a different kind of electricity than the external electricity that's in lightning and everything else. But but he was still he was trying to suss it out. He was trying to figure out uh, what was going on with the role of electricity in the bodies of animals. Okay. So I want to read a quote from a section of uh, of Andrea Wolf's book uh, where uh, she says that Humboldt and Goethe uh, had been hanging out when there there's a violent thunderstorm on this uh, on this spring day and uh, after the after Humboldt had been out taking in you know atmospheric readings while mm-hmm. he was watching the lightning happen during the storm the next day he finds out that a farmer and his wife nearby had been killed by the lightning in the storm so Wolf writes, he rushed over to obtain their corpses. <laughs> to obtain the corpses. Okay. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He just obtained them. Yeah. Uh, she writes, laying out their bodies on the table in the round anatomy tower, he analyzed everything. The man's leg bones looked as if they'd been pierced by shotgun pellets, Humboldt noted excitedly. But the worst damage was to the genitals. At first, he thought the pubic hair might have been ignited and caused the burns, but dismissed the idea when he saw the couple's unharmed armpits. Despite the increasingly putrid smell of death and burned flesh, Humboldt enjoyed every minute of this gruesome investigation. I cannot exist without experiments, he said. <laughs> so uh, so Alexander von Humboldt just shows up on the doorstep uh, following a tragic event and says, hey, I'm Alexander von Humboldt. I'm kind of a big deal. I need to see the uh, gruesomely distorted bodies of the uh, lightning strike victims. The funniest thing is this was before he was a really big deal. <laughs> this was when he was an upcoming big deal. Uh, but, yeah, he, I need to examine these scorched genitals for science. <laughs> 
But Wolf also writes about uh, one of Humboldt's favorite experiments that he ever performed, which was when he and Goethe were together experimenting on frog legs. This is uh, revisiting the, the themes of uh, Luigi Galvani, mm-hmm. right, who saw the frog legs dance when stimulated by the electricity of the lightning. Wolf writes, One morning, Humboldt placed a frog's leg on a glass plate and connected its nerves and several muscles to different metals in sequence, to silver, gold, iron, zinc, and so on, but generated only a discouraging, gentle twitch in the leg. When he then leaned over the leg in order to check the connecting metals, it convulsed so violently that it leapt off the table. Both men were stunned until Humboldt realized that it had been the moisture of his breath that had triggered the reaction. As the tiny droplets in his breath had touched the metals, they had created an electric current that had moved the frog's leg. Ah. It was the most magical experiment he'd ever carried out. Humboldt decided, because by exhaling onto the frog's leg, it was as if he were breathing life into it. It was the perfect metaphor for the emergence of the new life sciences. So again, this strangely religious aspect coming into the relationship between between electricity and the body. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, the, the the breath of life, even though the breath is actually just uh, delivering moisture that helps to uh, uh, complete the circuit. Now, another funny thing is not being there and uh, and knowing exactly what happened. You, it's hard to even determine if Humboldt's uh, interpretation of what actually caused the twitching is correct. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds sensible because it also plays into, um, in, into the example we'll get to at the end of this podcast regarding the electric chair. Yeah. Now I want to win- mention one more example of electricity, bioelectricity experiments carried out by Humboldt. And this one was later, uh, when he was in South America doing experiments and, and traveling through the rainforest with, uh, with someone named Aimé Bonplan. Uh, Bonplan was his his traveling and scientific companion. I believe he was a botanist. But anyway, there was an incident where Humboldt uh, found out from some locals in part of Venezuela, I believe, a town called Calabozo, that there were a bunch of shallow pools in the area that were filled with electric eels. And he Humboldt got very excited about this because he was a little bit eel crazy. Uh-huh. And and he'd heard that eels could deliver electric shocks of more than 600 volts. Uh, so, but then he's got a problem, right? So if an eel can deliver a shock of more than 600 volts, how do you catch it? Right. Especially since, uh, as as Wolf notes, the eels in these pools were buried in the mud at the bottom of the pools. So how do you get them out? Well, some of the locals came up with an idea. They said, we'll round up a whole bunch of horses. <laughs> and so they rounded up a bunch of wild horses from the nearby prairies and they drove the herd into the pond. So they had these wild horses stomping in the mud that had electric eels in it. And uh, I want to read another section from Wolf. She writes, as the horses' hooves churned up the mud, the eels wriggled up to the surface, giving off enormous electric shocks. Entranced, Humboldt watched the gruesome spectacle. The horses screamed in pain, the eels thrashed beneath their bellies, and water's surface boiled with movement. Some horses fell and, trampled by others, drowned. Over time, the strength of the electric shocks diminished, and the weakened eels retreated into the mud from where Humboldt pulled them with dry wooden sticks. But he hadn't waited long enough. When he and Bon Plon dissected some of the animals, they endured violent shocks themselves. <laughs> and then uh, she goes on to describe how for hours after this, they were just doing experiments on the eels, touching an eel, touching an eel standing on metal, touching an eel standing on clay, touching an eel and touching each other, both touching eels and uh, making uh, out a little bit. It just uh... it, it almost sounds like that's part of it. Again, there's this strangely sexual element to the mm-hmm. union of, of sharing the electrical kiss, you know, the kiss of Venus. Uh, but Wolf concludes this section of the book by talking about how uh, Humboldt began to think about electrical forces, uh, the forces that, she writes, variously created lightning, bound metal to metal, and moved the needles of compasses, all flow forth from one source and all melt together in an eternal, all-encompassing power. Hmm. I like that. That's a very poetic and and 
kind of supernatural, but scientifically grounded, if you will, a view of electricity. Yeah. And uh, I get the impression from this book that Humboldt was not a very religious guy. Yet here's this. It, I mean, he's not invoking supernatural entities or gods, but he is talking about it in this kind of vaulted spiritual language. So, again, it's blurring these lines. Yeah. I mean, because they're standing on the, the edge of the unknown. Right. And they're they're contemplating the unknown, allowing themselves to be shocked by the unknown. It's like like any given astronomer, you could have the most most atheistic astronomer possible. But if they're they're engaging with the night sky and viewing uh-huh. up at the cosmos, they're going to be likely overcome by the wonder of the cosmos in some form or another. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, this whole story about the electric eels, it reminds me of my favorite Marlon Brando story. What? Yeah. I don't know if you've heard this. Uh, I believe this one has been uh, this has been told by Ed Bagley, Jr., is this a scene that was cut from on the waterfront? Um, it's, it's a little older Brando that we're dealing with here. This is very much like the larger, um, crazier, reclusive uh, Brando. Okay. So, um, according to Ed Begley Jr., uh, he gets, he gets a call to come over to, uh, to the Brando household. Uh, he doesn't know what it's going to be about. He drives over, presumably in an electric car, right? And, uh, he comes inside and uh, Brando asks him, he says, Hey, could I get a bunch of electric eels and power the house? And, uh, you know, Ed, Ed so Be- Ed Begley Jr., he's the, he's the bicycle to power your, uh, water heater kind of guy. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. He's, you know, he, he's versed in alternative energy to a certain extent and is kind of a, you know, you know, has often uh, lent his voice to some of those causes. So yeah, Brando figured he was the guy to ask. And so Begley's kind of taken aback, but he says, you know, I, I don't think that would be possible. I don't think it would work. And indeed, it's difficult to try and power anything with an electric eel because for, <laughs> for one thing, they... Now, why? Well, for, for a number of reasons, but, you know, you'll see aquariums where they have like a little Christmas tree in uh-huh. there, and the electric eel will cause the tree to light up periodically. But the, the eel does not emit, a, you know, a, a continuous uh, amount of voltage. It's just, you know, quick shocks here and there. Right. So it, it would be it would be one of those things where if you try to engineer a system that uses the electric eels, you'd quickly out-engineer yourself and realize you're better off uh, using some other form. But uh, but anyway, so Bagley <laughs> says, I don't think that is going to work. And Brando just kind of gets grumpy and says, it's always no with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I love I love that story because it's um, it's just it's just a great Brando story and a great uh, electric eel story. Did he point a gun at him? Uh, I, Tell I, me true. Maybe. I don't know. But at, at any rate, it was like the, the audience was over at that point. It's like, all right, uh-huh. Begley, you've turned me down here on this electric eel business that I had a lot of hope built up for. So just go. Just go. Don't tell me no to any more of my it's dreams. Like you've you've disappointed the king of Spain or something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so as as you can see from the stuff we've been talking about, experiments about electricity didn't stop in the mid 1700s, where we were talking about a bunch of the uh, the experiments in the last episode. They they continued into uh, the turn of the century, the early 1800s, and uh, and it wasn't it also wasn't just the known scientists of the age who experimented with electricity. One of the weirdest stories I came across is a story about. Percy Shelley, ah, old P.B. Shelley, the poet, you know, the author of uh, what might you best know him from? Maybe Ozymandias. Yeah, I would imagine that's probably the most famous uh, look on my works, yeah. ye mighty in despair. Mm-hmm. But actually, you might know him best for being the husband of Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Right. And we talked in the last episode about the uh, the the impression made on Mary Shelley by the uh, the lecturers in electricity and how that might have led to ideas in Frankenstein, but. But her own husband might have also inspired some of these scientific terrors because there is a story that when he was young, Percy Shelley was learning about electricity during his schooling and his tutoring. And he wanted to experiment. He wanted to do some electrical experiments. And he ended up just mainly these experiments were shocking his sisters. <laughs> and so his sister Helen wrote, quote, when my brother commenced his studies in chemistry and practiced electricity on us, I confess my pleasure in it was entirely negatived by terror at its effects. Whenever he came to me with his piece of folded brown packing paper under his arm and a bit of wire and a bottle, 
My heart would sink with fear at his approach, but shame kept me silent, and, with as many others as he could collect, we were placed hand-in-hand round the nursery table to be electrified. But when a suggestion was made that chillblains were to be cured by this means, my terror overwhelmed all other feelings, and the expression of it released me from all future annoyance. Uh, he sounds a little bit like a, a young monster there, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of does. Or at least a mad scientist. But again, it kind of, this is still the age of the, uh, the, the sort of gentleman science, the scientist, you know, the idea that any individual of means might take up science as a, as a pastime and, and would engage in various experiments about natural phenomena. Right. Or to, uh, to impress people or get his yayas out. Yeah. Yeah. But the pretense here that, uh, that the electricity and the shocks could be used to treat chillblains does sort of tie into something that we should talk about, which is the role of electricity in supposed uh, medical practices and even magical beliefs about healing. Yeah, this is a fascinating area because, I mean, on, on one hand, there are, there's the obvious role that electricity plays in modern medicine and in the advent of modern medicine. Yeah, you, you, think, you might think about defibrillation. Yeah, or even some stuff as simple as being able to use electric lighting during a surgical procedure or yeah. electrical uh, cauterization tools during surgery, yeah. uh, stuff of that nature. Like, it really ends up playing a role in so many different facets of, of modern medicine. Uh-huh. But yet the idea that electricity in and of itself has a healing property to it um, – this ends up uh, carrying a great deal of cultural weight during the time. Sure. Well, you don't have to invoke medical principles mm-hmm. to make the assumption that there's some kind of power in the electrical fire that has uh, has healing potential over the body. I mean, there has always been the idea of uh, forces of nature like light and fire as cleansing agents. And I think for many people, electricity took on some of these same elements. Uh, there was one claim I read in a book called Witchcraft, Confessions and Accusations, edited by Mary Douglas. And according to a claim in this book, in one case, uh, the uh, Bangwa people of Cameroon took a child who was believed to be a witch. And what they did to cure the child's witchcraft was sent the child into an electrified region of the country in the south under the reasoning that a few mon- months of exposure to electricity would cure the child's witchcraft. Okay. Well, it seems seems plausible. Uh, I mean, uh, because uh, because as we've uh, touched on before, like throughout history, humans have been encountering electricity on one form in one form or the other. If not lightning on the hillside, then presumably just the static discharge uh, that occurs when you shock somebody. Uh, and this is something that, that interested me. I, I can't help but wonder why we don't see more examples, uh, particularly related to this interpersonal discharge of static electricity, at least as a way to explain certain folk beliefs and magical superstitious beliefs. You know, because at heart, that's a very... I mean, it's the same principle as uh, as as two individuals touching each other while uh, dissecting uh, an electric fish, right? I mean, there you're, there's this spark, sometimes visible spark between two people. Uh, well, yeah, that is, uh, it, it's the literal embodiment in reality of a thing that's often imagined in magical thinking. In, yeah. in magical thinking, there's often this sense of. Uh, of supernatural contagion where you can pass the properties of one thing onto another thing by touching. Yeah. And that that's generally not true. It's not true that you can gain the virility of a boar by touching the boar's tusk to your head or something, but you can confer electric charge by touching. Yeah. And this is demonstrated over and over in these public lectures we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, you know, it's also interesting. I want to mention that the, uh, according to the Electrostatic Society of America, um, <laughs> that's a thing. And this was actually mentioned in a blog post at improbable.com, uh, improbable research, the, uh, Ig Nobel Prize, uh, 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 organizing body. Oh, okay. Yeah. They, uh, they, they pointed out that, that quote, this is uh, from the Electrostatic Society of America, quote, electrostatics is an exciting area of science as its most basic scientific questions remain unknown and highly controversial. What? Yeah. And yet its consequences are widespread. For example, the uh, 
the identity of the species transferred uh, to generate charge when materials rub is being hotly debated in the leading scientific journals. Some researchers argue that it is electrons, others that it is ions, and yet others that it is bits of material. What? So that's, that's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. So that's just a little footnote to remind everyone that, that again, even in our modern uh, time, there, when we take all the electricity around us for granted, we still haven't solved some basic questions such as why uh, my child shocks me when he comes down a slide uh, on, a, on a chilly afternoon at the playground. Fascinating. Uh, but of course, the, the treatment of witchcraft I mentioned earlier is not the only spiritually significant use of electricity as a healing agent, right? That's right. Uh, we have a few different examples to cover here, but uh, one of the more interesting is uh, that of John Wesley. Okay, Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Yeah, right? founder of Methodism, uh, Christian theologian. Uh, if you visit, um, I believe, uh, yeah, Savannah here in our own uh, native state of Georgia, there is a statue of uh, of John Wesley there. Huh. Yeah, kind of looks like Snape. Why in Savannah? What did he do in Savannah? He visited there for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah he was he was in Georgia for a little bit, then he went back. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like how in Montrose, Switzerland, there's a statue of Freddie Mercury. Oh, there is. Huh. Yeah, there is. Oh. Which which version of Freddie Mercury? Uh, he he's doing a great dancing pose. It's oh. great statue. Oh, cool. I, I highly recommend it if you're in Switzerland. <laughs> okay. All right. So you, you're probably wondering, okay, why John Wesley? Why did John Wesley? Uh, why why yeah. is this guy interested in electricity? Never heard of him having anything to do with electricity or science in general. Yeah, because prior prior to this, aside from knowing that he was the, the founder of Methodism, like the only other real touchstone for me was that uh, in 1768 he argued that quote giving up of witchcraft is in effect the giving up of the Bible. Oh. Um, Getting down to this, uh, playing into this idea that a lot of witchcraft persecution and the horrible links we went to uh, to obtain uh, witchcraft confessions from accused witches, that a lot of that amounted to this need to provide expert testimony of the physical existence of a demonic afterlife and therefore the implied physical existence of um, of God. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the Bible acknowledges the existence of, of witchcraft and, and all kinds of folk magic beliefs. So if to to sort of say we believe in the Bible, but we don't believe in all the folk magic seems inconsistent. There's an aporia there, right? As, yeah. Uh, so as it, Socrates might, might point <laughs> out. Indeed. So. So, yeah, it's, it's weird to think here's this guy who who sees witchcraft as a reality that cannot be denied. And yet he's also caught up in uh, this uh, this this curiosity about uh, electricity. Yeah. Of all things. And uh, apparently he became interested in electricity in uh, the late 1740s. OK, so, so this is right after the Leyden jar. Yeah, very much in the wake of mainstream fascination with electrical demonstrations and the supposed therapeutic applications of electricity. Oh, like the medical electricity we were we yeah. mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the idea that, oh, here, here's a shock. That'll cure what ails you. Uh, its appeal, though, at this point had reached even the lower levels of society. And these are the very people that Wesley sought to reach with Methodism. And uh, it, this whole in uh Interconnectivity of uh, of Wesley's uh, you know spiritual purpose, if you will, and his uh, interest in electricity. It's uh, apparently an area that historians have only recently begun to really dig into, huh. and that's according to again electrical historian um, extraordinaire Paola Bertucci, uh, who uh, wrote a wonderful uh, article titled "Revealing Sparks: John Wesley and the Religious Utility of Electrical Healing." Bertucci uh, describes him as an electrical supporter who combined moral instruction and natural philosophy. And, of course, he wasn't the only person to do this at the time. But uh-huh. but Wesley demonstrated the healing power of electricity to further Methodism, not uh, electricity, not science, certainly. Right. So this was yet another religious technology, technology in service of religious or spiritual goals. Exactly. Like it plays right into our, our uh, the, into some of the uh, the issues we discussed in the techno religion episodes. He used electricity itself as a demonstration of God's power, both as a, a benevolent force and as a, a damning force, you know, so both sides of the, the of of the God coin, right? The 
the the wrathful God and the benevolent God. Yeah, uh, she writes, quote, as signs of God's wrath, electric manifestations gave humans a glimpse of the terrifying prospect of eternal punishment. At the same time, it was because of divine benevolence that the power of the electric fire was available to humankind as a healing agent. It's the it's the magical carrot and the magical stick combined in this natural phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. She says sparks revealed the divinity. Huh. And and this really interests me in light of that quote I read earlier about witchcraft, because uh, Wesley supported the persecution of witchcraft for much the same reason as he's as he's interested in demonstrating the power of electricity. Uh, the confessed witch revealed the demonic, which in turn revealed the divine. And here he is revealing the powers of electricity in order to reveal the divine to the onlooker. Demon in one hand, spark of electricity in the other. That's great. That's great. You know, I also can't help but think of the uh, touch the screen era of TV uh, evangelism. I don't know what you're talking about. I, uh, and I've watched my share of TV <laughs> evangelists. The, the idea that you would yeah, you would physically touch the screen in order to interact with the healing uh, powers that were being demonstrated uh, by the TV uh, the evangelist. Wow. And, and in doing so, you're going to feel, you know, some of that static discharge on the screen. Right. So to what extent uh, is that playing into uh uh, you know, religious electricity in a more modern sense. That's interesting. I, I almost that makes me wonder if that scene in Poltergeist is parodying the uh, the spiritual power transferred through the screen by touching. Maybe so. Maybe so. I've actually never seen these uh, these TV preachings, but th- it makes me think about a principle that uh, often gets brought up on another podcast. Do you ever listen to the podcast Sawbones? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with it. Oh yeah, they're they're great. They're they're it's a it's a husband and wife team who uh who are really fun and they talk about basically some of the worst parts of medical history so all oh, the, okay all the bad cure-alls and and <laughs> treatments that have been used throughout the years that didn't really help people very much at all and one of the things they often talk about is the is the it did something principle mm. Um, so a, a fake treatment that doesn't actually treat people is more likely to be accepted as effective if it at least causes some kind of noticeable effect, even if it doesn't cure you. Yeah. Even if it's discomfort, right? Then you feel like, oh, it's, it's doing something. I feel it. I feel the shock. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what that's what I'm thinking about with the shock here. If somebody can charge up a friction generator and and give you a shock of static electricity from it. Uh, you'll feel it. And even if you don't know exactly what's going on, how exactly it's supposed to work, what is the method of action inside your body? You at least felt something happen that was real and it was powerful and, and pain sort of in our minds. I think pain equals reality. We accept when something painful happens that that something important has happened. Right. And so I can easily see this kind of principle acting on uh, uh, the use of medical uh, medical electricity in the 1700s, even if it wasn't really working to cure a lot of things. It was it was doing something. Yeah. And hey, if you can uh, if you can combine pleasure and pain into the same package, uh, then you have a product that can likely uh, uh, really resonate with the uh, with with the uh, with the people out there. Oh, and that certainly ties into another aspect of the electrical treatments of the time, which would be electrical quackery, very often having to do with sex. There was a guy we mentioned in the last episode, we're coming back to him now, one James Graham, who was a Scottish, I believe he was born in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was a Scottish quack doctor, essentially, who was a, he called himself a hygienist, I think, and a, and a sex therapist in some way, who offered various vaguely defined electrical treatments uh, on on how to get people's sex lives going again. He had some famous institutions. One was called the Temple of Health. Another one was called the Temple of Hymen. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, God, what was the deal with these things? Okay, so... First of all, he would he would apparently often travel around and promote all of this stuff accompanied by the beautiful young goddess of health. Oh, yeah. He, um, had, he had like a train of attractive ladies to help him promote his message of medical well-being. Yeah. And, you know, like any good salesman, he has to have products he can sell on the spot as well as uh, more expensive products that are sold on location. Right? Uh-huh. He sold exposure to electrical aether as well as a, a special uh, ointment that you could uh, rub on your body. And uh, wait, what was the ointment? It was uh, nervous, ethereal balsam. Oh, good. Yeah. You yeah. want to keep some of that around. It's like bag bomb, except for, uh, you know, 
sexual purposes. Yeah, but he also sold access to his special electrically powered sex bed, right? Yeah, if you visited the Temple of Hymen, which he opened in 1781, uh, couples with marital or sexual problems could test out the celestial bed for a mere 50 pounds a night. Okay. So we're talking about a 12 by 9 foot bed. Uh, it has uh, colored glass columns, mirrors, of course, um, erotic paintings, flashing electrical lights, organ music, and perfume. Huh. Yeah. It uh, it reminds me a little bit. Uh, my wife once shot uh, uh, some pictures of the inside of uh, Kenny Rogers' house uh, when he lived up, uh, I think, in, in around Athens, uh, Georgia. He, he had a house. He had bought this this antique bed from James Graham. No, but he he did have apparently a lot of mirrors in the bedroom, um, like a disturbing amount of mirrors in the bedroom, uh, and and that's the kind of thing you would get out of the celestial bed. Well, you know what they say in the gambler: the best you can hope for is to die in your sleep. So yeah. Well, there you go. And if you're going to die in your sleep, there might as well be a lot of uh, electrically powered flashing lights uh, there as well. Yeah. You got to know when to hold them. Uh, yeah. One more interesting comment on Graham from uh, from Bertucci, actually. She writes that uh, he he didn't uh, now in contrast to some of these other electrical healers, which would shock you for yeah. for health. Graham, quote, exploited the fashion enjoyed by electricity as a further extravaganza for his healing center. Okay. The largest electrical apparatus in the world, he called it, was on display, <laughs> uh, rather than in use in the temple where electrical vapors wrapped up the patients. And this is a quote from his materials, gently pervading the whole system with a copious tide of that celestial fire, fully impregnated with the purest, most subtle and balmiest parts of medicine which are extracted by and flow softly into the blood and nervous system with the electric fluid or restorative ethereal essences. Yeah. I don't know to what extent he was using any kind of electrical technology. He was given this some electrical vapors. Yeah, aside from using electrical lights on the uh, <laughs> celestial bed, I don't think you've... Organ music? Much. Yeah, no organ music. Yeah, but otherwise he has to be the, the biggest scam artist by far that we've encountered in these episodes. Uh-huh. Now... Again, that was uh, around 1781. We'd have to wait a good century, though, for the electric vibrator to become a reality, an actual use of uh, of electricity to directly deliver uh, sexual pleasure. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and we got it finally, thanks to uh, Dr. J. Mortimer Granville. Now, previously, uh, one had to rely on George Taylor's 1869 steam-powered manipulator or the hand-cranked uh, Macura's blood circulator all in the name of treating supposed bouts of hysteria uh, with a healthy dose of orgasm. Yeah, and these are not products that you would necessarily uh, go to the store and buy to use at your own leisure in the product uh, in the privacy of your own home, but more something that would kind of be prescribed for you by your doctor, Right. which sounds like it takes some of the uh, happiness out of it. Yes, I, w- I would think so. Okay, so now we, we've talked about electricity in the body, strange healing characteristics, but also we need to talk about electricity, the occult, the esoteric, and the, the spiritual in the sense of spiritualism. Yes. Uh, because John Murray Spear also was into some electricity, uh, some science. Yes, you, listeners to our techno religion may remember him as the, as the individual who whose followers built the electric messiah. Yeah, so he was a progressive radical of the 1800s. He was an abolitionist. He was for a lot of uh, progressive political causes, but he turned in the middle of the 1800s into a spiritualist leader, meaning he was a guy who claimed to get messages from the spirit world, and they they detailed lots of plans for him for sort of ungainly projects that he got his followers to carry out on his uh-huh. behalf, uh, including the construction of the new motor. That's the thing we talked about. There was a, there was a, a vaguely described machine messiah to herald the dawn of a new age by being a perpetual motion machine and changing the, the human of, of the past into the new man. Yeah, I think we described it before as looking like a, a like the, the like the of a, of a Dalek and a coffee table bred and produced offspring. That's yeah, what this would be. That's pretty much it. 
But he also uh, had some interesting interactions with the science of electricity. And this would have been later than what we were talking about before, almost a century later. So the, this would be in the 1850s. In The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spirit Land, the author John Benedict Buescher mentions several cases where the beliefs of the mid-19th century spiritualists in America included spiritual significance of electricity. So uh, one one associate of Spears, who was a medium and spiritual healer named Elizabeth French, had been, quote, an electrical experimenter ever since she was young, trying to revive victims of lightning strikes and drowning by the action of certain rude batteries in the construction of which I, even then a child, endowed with strong tendencies in that direction, was myself the mechanic. Oh. That was Elizabeth French speaking <laughs> there at the end. Uh, and she she later on partnered with, so she, yeah, so she's trying to use batteries to bring people back from the dead. Pretty good. She partners with Spear for electrical experiments in uh, augmenting spiritual potential. So communicating with the spirit world, they're saying maybe we can use electricity to amp up somebody's ability to communicate with the spirits. And this included Spear trying to control and influence the spirits with the aid of a suit of armor made out of copper and zinc batteries. Yeah, and we were talking about this. We're not sure if this is the, exactly the same um, outfit or a different one. Uh-huh. But uh, the book also mentions that uh, Spears had one Isaac Hedges, who was a St. Louis magnetic uh, spiritualist, had him craft, quote, a wizard suit from minerals, metals, and stones, which he wore during his experiments. And the suit itself connected to a battery, which supposedly boosted his personal electromagnetic field. That's crazy. A, a batter, a, a wizard suit made out of batteries. Yeah. <laughs> it's too good. And, and Spear, he didn't stop there. He also proposed creating telepathic towers. I can't remember if we mentioned this in the other episode, but he wanted to create a worldwide network of telepathic towers, which would each, uh, quote, constitute a grand focus of magnetic and electric influences. And this would enable a sort of broadband spirit medium channeling, uh, and worldwide communication. So they, they'd have operators who were spirit mediums who'd use the electricity generated by the towers to channel the voices of the spirits back and forth between each other around the world, and it would be faster than the telegraph. You know, what's, what's fascinating about this point in the, the, the timeline we're exploring is that we're really looking at the just at the enthusiastic supernatural employ of, uh, of, of current electrical knowledge. Yeah. So on one hand, you have this push towards the mundane and this is really, this is really the area of like the midlife crisis. I feel with the, with the supernatural qualities of electricity where you see the, 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 the Portions of uh, of of the populace going into just a really extreme uh, magical uh, direction with it, uh-huh. which is crazy because even at this point in history, we're starting to get a much better understanding of of how to harness electricity for utterly mundane purposes, just how to make the machines that make our lives more convenient. Yeah, like I feel like we're at the point in a Scooby Doo cartoon where the the villain in the ghost costume is apprehended and they're about to pull the mask off. Meanwhile, John Murray Spear and some of the other individuals we're discussing here, they are pointing at uh, at the, the the culprit and saying, no, that is really a ghost. Right. It is not old man Blavatsky. Right. <laughs> but speaking of people named Blavatsky, that uh, gives us a good transition to one last thing about spirituality and electricity, which is the theology of electricity that came through in various forms of Western esotericism. Yeah, there's a great paper on this that's uh, out there um, titled The Esoteric Uses of Electricity by Nicholas Goodrich Clark, uh, which I highly recommend, uh, recommend uh, uh, looking at if you uh, want a little more on this particular area. This again, this last sort of last thrust of electrical spiritism. So what does Goodrich Clark have to say about uh, the electric theology? Well, he uh, discusses a few different individuals. Uh, he discusses leading uh, the theosophy uh, proponent Madame Helena Blavatsky, uh, whose belief in electric, who believed in electricity as quote an animating soul-like force or fluid. Now we've seen that kind of idea before, mm-hmm. and of course, she also preached the power of the third eye and the pineal glands' role in modern man as an atrophied uh, vestige of this organ of spiritual vision. Huh. So, just to give that's just to give you a brief idea about the the uh, about theosophy and what kind of uh, worldview she was immersed in. Yeah, if you're not familiar with esotericism, these are. 
I don't know what you might call them. They're sort of alternative religions uh, yeah. in uh, in the history of Western culture. Yeah, new religious movements uh, for sure. But theosophy, one that maybe held, didn't hold on as well as some of the others that, that uh, cropped up. Um, he, he uh, Goodrich Clark also uh, points to uh, scholar Ernst Benz as uh, uh, having identified the, quote, theology of electricity. Uh, amongst a group of 18th century Swabian uh, uh, theosophers. He claimed that the, quote, discovery of electricity and the simultaneous discovery of magnetic and galvanic phenomena were accompanied by a most significant change in the image of God and that it led to a, quote, completely new understanding of the relation of body and soul, of spirit and matter. Now, how does that play out? What does that look like? Basically... It mean, I mean, basically what we're looking at is all this new information about electricity is coming out. And and there are individuals who are instead of saying, hmm, uh, I wonder how that casts new light on my understanding or they're thinking, oh, well, that's something that exists separately from my religious understanding of the world. Uh-huh. They're like, no, this is the path. Let's pour all of our our spiritual gusto into this new uh, electrical format. So if the if the electricity is the frontier of future science, this could be the kind of religious thinking that says, no, we're not going to ground our religious ideas in the past. We're going to ground them in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of I mean, this is a time of, of, of huge change. And what do you do when the world changes and you have either an, an old set of beliefs or you sort of cling to that mode of belief like you have to you either have to say no that's bs keep that away from me and keep it out of the school books uh-huh. or you say yes bring it here let me incorporate it yeah um you know and I, we've looked at some uh, plenty of examples where uh, a religion's ability to incorporate new scientific understanding is certainly a, a healthy thing it doesn't always um, lead to sort of fringe belief systems well it's funny now that we think about electricity as just utterly uncontroversial religiously. Right. I mean, uh, there there are so many scientific ideas that do come into conflict with uh, with religious ideas. Ideas about, for example, uh, I don't know, cosmology and the origins of the universe. Ideas about biological evolution. Ideas of of uh, geology conflicting with the literal reading of some holy books. Right. Uh, you you see these pretty often, but electricity seems just utterly theologically neutral, but that hasn't always been the case. Yeah, I mean, it, in the same way that it's difficult for us to imagine this this time when electricity was new and exciting, it's hard to imagine its uh, its newness and its and its excitingness, uh, you know, having an impact on modes of religious belief. Uh, an, another example that uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark uh, draws on is that of Austrian occultist, Racial political theorist, a uh, former uh, monk, and also the founder of Ariosophy, uh, as well as a, a, a pretty notable anti-Semite. Oh. Uh, this is Lenz von Liebenfels, lived uh, 1874 to 1954, and he saw electricity as, quote, a measure of spiritual evolution, unquote, that was granted only to Arians, Christ, and other uh, spiritual intermediaries. Oh, that's pretty nasty. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was not a decent guy. Like this is a guy that when um, when Hitler rose to power, uh, he was just kissing up immediately, apparently, and um, and Hitler just didn't really have time for him. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, he was he was not a, a pleasant guy. So as far as we know, Hitler didn't buy into his uh, electrical theological positions. No, no he seemed he, from based on what I was reading here, he really had no interest in it. Uh, but. But uh, but Lanz was one of these guys who was like, yes, what you're preaching is fits perfectly with, with what I'm selling. Uh, and and what I take it all to mean is that the, the simultaneous advancement of supernatural belief and scientific understanding just can result in some some very weird, seemingly to the outsider, weird modes of belief, but also maybe exciting modes of belief. OK, but here I think it's time to arrive at at the final stage of the the transformer step down of the spiritual power of electricity. Yes. Uh, the metaphor you mentioned in the last episode, because something starts to happen, especially in the second half of the 19th century, we might say, where electricity is losing a lot of its psychic, spiritual and symbolic power. It's becoming less and less incorporated into, I don't know, transcendental language and metaphor. It's becoming less a source of mystery and wonder. 
and more something that resonates with what Thomas Hardy said in the quote we talked about at the beginning of the episode. It, it highlights something very natural and mundane in contrast to that classical sense of holy otherness. Yeah, it's 2 a.m. at the nightclub. Lons and Spear are both still dancing desperately to keep the party going <laughs> while other individuals are are going home. Yeah, and so uh, I want to use just one, I think, pretty perfect example of this. So y- you, it's December 27th, 1879, and you have just received your copy of the Scientific American Supplement, and you're leafing through it. And it features uh, on one page an invention by one M. DeFoy, which was an electric horse bit. Oh, so the the bit being the part that goes in the horse's mouth yes. is electrified. It was okay. a carriage armed with an electromagnetic apparatus that could send electric current through metal wires embedded in the reins. And uh, if it opened the circuit to the current, it would travel down the reins and through the bit in the horse's mouth, giving the horse an electric shock through its mouth and teeth. Ugh. So according to this article, uh, it was the invention was considered a success because it managed to calm down several, quote, vicious and stubborn horses uh, so that they long enough that they could be shod. They were trying to, you know, get some shoes on these horses. They wouldn't cooperate. So zap them in the mouth. OK. Uh, the superintendent of the Parisian cab company, uh, M. Camille, wrote, quote, one horse that was to be shod went so far as to lie down and roll over and over on the ground, all the while struggling, defending himself and fighting against everything. Nothing could subdue him. I then had recourse to M. DeFoy's apparatus, and on the first trial, much to my surprise, the feet of the intractable horse were lifted without any great difficulty, and on the second trial it was as easy to shoe him as if he had never made the least resistance. The animal was conquered. So we've reduced the uh, the no spark to something that you just uh, uh, torment a horse with, essentially just a bullwhip. Yeah, well, and that actually comes in because M. DeFoy went on to create another appliance along the same lines, the electric riding whip, Uh, which sounds more or less like a taser for horses. Yeah. And if you're thinking like, what horror? Nobody would ever do anything like that today. I mean, we have electric fences for livestock today. Uh, there are shock collars for animals. So, I mean, using electricity to control and tame, uh, wild animal instincts is something that is now a grand tradition. It's not a very pretty one. We don't like to think about it. It doesn't seem like a nice thing to do, but it's a thing we do with the electric fire that used to be such a cosmic mystery. Yeah, and you know, also when it comes to taming uh, horses, you know, not not every method is that uh, you know lovable and uh, horse whispery, right? So. But this begins to get at something that uh, that really comes through in an essay we mentioned in the last episode, and we're going to refer to again now by uh, Nicholas Ruddick called "Life and Death by Electricity in 1890: The Transfiguration of William Kimmler." Uh, like we mentioned in the last episode, this is a really great paper. It's worth reading. It's a very interesting history of uh, what was happening with the power of electricity in the late 1800s. Well, he points to uh, an 1890 Scientific American article that uh, that does a great job of just laying out just how much electricity is in the average person's life. It wakes them up in the morning. It cooks their breakfast. It's on their ride into work. It's all over work. Uh, when they go to church, there are electric bells. There's an electric organ. And uh, on up into your death, when you die, an electric apparatus is used to carve your name into a tombstone. So it, it we, we give it this enormous power over our lives, right? It's yeah. used in medicine. It can kill. It can uh, it can be a communication technology. And yet at the same time, it has lost its spiritual and symbolic luster, hasn't it? Yeah, like the the poetry is seeping out of it, you know, and uh, and and a lot of it just has to do with the fact that maybe all the poetic things that can be said about it have been said. Uh, like the language that we're using to describe it is getting a bit dull, even even if it seems exciting to re-explore it from a modern perspective. And then, yeah, it's also just everywhere. Like, how mystical can it be if it cooks your toast? How mystical can it be, um, you know, if it's if it's just lighting a light bulb while you read something? And I think to put a cherry on this, uh, this transformation into an utterly mundane and dirty, in, down-in-the-mud kind of force of nature was when it was finally used in a legal execution. Yes, which again brings us back to uh, William Kimmler, uh, first man executed by electricity under the world's first electrical execution law, 
New York State, January 1st, 1889. And like the history of this is really interesting. For instance, just how, how did we come to the point where that was even on the table? Well, yeah, why, why, yeah. why use electricity? Well, apparently the, the key arguments for this were coming from prominent supporters in Buffalo, New York. Uh-huh. Um, and that's because Buffalo was really close to Niagara Falls and there was a lot of hydroelectric work going on there. The dam, uh, they began the dam there in 1886. And so they considered themselves to be on the cutting edge of technology. Uh, you know, it's like the Silicon Valley of the day. And, uh, and, and so in particular, you have one uh, Dr. Albert Southwick who was lobbying, um, with, uh, with New York state uh, representatives for electrical Execution. Why? With the state Senate. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, for instance, if Silicon Valley big shots were lobbying for execution by virtual reality or maybe streaming (laughs) video today, right? Like, can you imagine when they're saying, hey, we got this technology. Why aren't we using it to kill people? Right. Death by social media. Yeah. So, but they, they had some core arguments for it. They said that, all right, this is a humanitarian advancement. Forget hanging. Uh, hanging, you know, hanging has all of these horrible associations with the past, particularly with America's past. Right. Let's move beyond it. Let's use something new and exciting to kill people uh, that has less weight to it. The, the, I think there was inherently some sense that low tech things were less desirable. Yeah. Like it wasn't it didn't even have to be that it caused less pain. It was just more dignified to be killed by this apparatus of science and technology rather than the creepy lo-fi image of a hangman's news. Yeah, and they also a- added that hey, if you're if you're going to hang somebody, you might something might go wrong, you have an accidental beheading that takes place or yeah. if, you're, if you're actually doing a beheading, there's going could be an arterial spray. This is hygienically sound. It is very scientific. I mean, the electric chair is. Yeah, the electric chair is the hygienic, scientifically sound way to go, and since electricity had been observed to kill rapidly and seemingly painlessly, it seemed like like another perfect way to avoid any messy accidents uh, during an execution. Don't worry about the, you know, something going wrong with the way you've uh, you've uh, you've presented the gallows this way. You just turn. It's basically the off switch for life. Do you think they believed these arguments they were making? Or was this just completely mercenary trying to get? uh, I, I don't know. I I get the sense that they believed it in the sense that you know there was data supported. I mean, even just reading over what I what I just heard, it's like if you're if you're already on board with the idea that criminals must be executed, then the most humane argument within that mindset is, well, let's make it painless, let's make it quick, let's make it hygienic, let's do all of those things that makes it less. Less, less horrible, you know? Well, was anybody at this point still trying to hang on to the sacredness of electricity? We, they actually were. And that, and that, and this is interesting because, yeah, there were, there were others who were saying that this was a degrading use of miraculous energy. Kind of, I guess, kind of like the last uh, vestige of that earlier, um, enthusiasm for it. There, you heard people saying, oh, you're going to kill people with it? Now that's too far. Now you've just really taken it, uh, into, uh, an unfortunate area. Even Edison was against it. The man who electrocuted, you know, numerous animals during the War of Currents. Mm-hmm. Uh, though not Topsy the Elephant, apparently, despite some popular cur- cu- coverage to the, to the contrary. Huh. Yeah. So anyway, it was a year before the conviction um, of Kimmler was finally upheld. Oh, yeah. Kimmler uh, had a lot of litigation and appeals, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was a, a kind of a big case. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1890. And a lot of the litigation uh, was presumed to come from Westinghouse Electric Company as they were pl- displeased to know that their AC uh, dynamos would be used in the execution, uh, having been <laughs> obtained by three prisons in New York State. So they were afraid of bad press for their electricity and they paid this guy's legal bills to try to prevent it from from being used to kill him. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we create this product, this podcast. What if we found out that prisons had subscribed to the podcast in order to use it in some sort of sonic death device for execution? Or to take it in another direction, uh, you know, you have uh, musicians such as Trent Reznor who were uh, outraged when they found out that their music uh, might be used by interrogators in certain situations. Or uh, rock musicians who have politicians they don't like using their music at campaign rallies. Exactly. You've created this thing for one purpose, and here someone's going to use it for this 
this <laughs> this rather despicable purpose over here. And then there's this. No one knew exactly how electricity would kill him. Oh, yeah. what a crazy <laughs> controversy. Yeah, they, they didn't know what electricity did the bo- do to the body to cause death. They yeah. knew it could cause death. Right. But yeah. what did it do? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we knew we observed it happen. We knew it happened. But, but experts were split on exactly what would happen um, to Kimmler. Um, doctors knew that the body util- utilized electricity in the nervous system. Some physicians even employed it, again, as a curative measure, as we've discussed. Some uh, even taking the view that the body was like a battery that needed regular recharging. That goes back to the medical electricity yeah. we talked about. Shock me, make me better. Yeah. So, uh, And then other experiments had proven electricity's ability to revive dying dogs. Uh and and as well as some of these uh, these experiments, we just saw the, like the animation of tissue. Uh, so perhaps he would enter into a state of what they refer to as electrical asphyxia, where he would be rolled out to the morgue while still alive and presumably like screaming inwardly. Um, they weren't sure if if he would die of destroyed vital organs, if he would uh, asphyxiate, and then they didn't know if they should use AC or DC at first. They ended up going with the former as it was considered more dangerous, a, a wasp that would strike multiple times rather than a bee sting. So they constructed the uh, AC dynamo at uh, Auburn Prison uh, in order uh, so that it would uh, deliver a maximum of 1,680 volts. They killed a horse with it. They killed a, te- a cow with it to test it out. What? 1,000 volts would kill a horse, 500 would kill a dog. So surely the full uh, 1680 would kill a man without any difficulty. Okay, so what actually happened when it came time for the execution? All right, so they turned it on, they gave him 17 seconds of current, and he was pronounced dead. And they think, all right, we've done it. That was that sounds that seems perfectly reasonable. Seventeen quick seconds of powerful current kills him dead. But, but then, then. Yeah, then a witness protests, stands up and says he is alive. I see him breathing. And indeed, his chest was moving. He was still alive. So they they panicked and they had to turn it back on. Oh, man. And this is where things start getting horrible. Blood pours from the ruptured capillaries in his face. An unpleasant smell builds up like that. I think of, it was described as worse than unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll we'll read some of the the uh, the quotes uh, from uh, from uh, individuals who witnessed this. But yes, yeah, like a stench of singed hair and flesh. And uh, all told, at the end of it, Kimmler received eight minutes of current. And they later realized that the electrodes didn't make full contact, so he didn't receive the full power of the current. So they were just shocking him at a lower voltage. Yeah. And ugh. yeah, think back to the the breathing on the frog. Remember. Uh, breathing the, the the moisture of one's breath under the frog, and it yeah. was a, a la- uh, uh, enabled uh, you know full contact to be made with the electrodes on the frog. Similar here, yeah, they say if Kimmler had sweated more, or if they had greased him up or something beforehand, that would have made the difference. But instead, they just end up roasting him at a slower rate with a with, with a lower voltage. So uh, yet again, this sounds kind of like the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, exactly the opposite of everything they'd preached about a, a swift hygienic death. In fact, we have uh, uh, a few quotes from it. We're going to read from you now. And this is from Kimmler's Death by Torture. That's the headline. New York Herald, uh, August 7th, 1890. Men accustomed to every form of suffering grew faint as the awful spectacle was unfolded before their eyes. Those who stood the sight were filled with awe as they saw the effects of this most potent of fluids, which is only partly understood by those who have studied it most faithfully as it slowly disintegrated the fiber and tissues of the body through which it passed. The heaving of a chest, which it had been promised would be stilled in an instant peace as soon as the circuit was completed. The foaming of the mouth, the bloody sweat, the writhing shoulders, and all the other signs of life. Horrible as these were, they were made infinitely more horrible by the premature removal of the electrodes and the subsequent replacing of them for not seconds but minutes until the room was filled with the odor of burning flesh and strong men fainted and fell like logs upon the floor. And all this done in the name of science. Yeah, so quite a spectacle. Um, and again, quite the opposite of what uh, everyone was promised with this. And then, of course, they, they ended up doing an autopsy. They found uh, that uh, the small blood vessels between the brain and the skull, uh, that, that all the blood was like charcoal, charcoal, but not burned to ash. Uh, but the fluid had been evaporated Ugh. and the skull itself had been badly burned. So, yeah, all these gory details made it out into the press. And uh, it was kind of a PR nightmare for uh, 
for the electric chair's uh, first uh, entry into the modern world. And I, I think Nicholas Ruddick is making the point in his paper that this is sort of the, this is the death blow to yeah. the to the sacred spirituality of electricity. All of the the mystery, all of the metaphorical sense in which it embodied uh, virility, fertility, spirituality, the great unknown, the power of the universe, the power of God, whatever it was that you thought was imbued in this force, it it, it was kind of all gone by this point. Yeah, we've taken this divine energy and we've like imperfectly tamed it. We've tamed it. But then in trying to utilize it, utilize it poorly and for just the most base purposes. Yeah. And, and again, needlessly, it's not like we didn't know how to execute people beforehand. I mean, again, you can certainly give credence to these cases that we needed a more modern, hygienic uh, and dependable means of, uh, of carrying out these sentences. But it's it's hard to, to argue that too much in the face of of the results there, those 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 minutes and minutes of roasting electrocution. Yeah, but it, it also, uh, Reddick points out, wasn't just the, this use, this barbaric use of electricity. Mm-hmm. It was also something about the familiarity. He, you know, he comments that by the 1890s, as electricity came more and more into our lives, he says, quote, it was becoming increasingly difficult to talk about transcendental matters in electrical terms. And I think that's really saying something. To me, that suggests that there's something, uh, we, we sort of alluded to this earlier, but uh, about holiness itself, the concept of holiness and mystery, uh, that is the same as strangeness and otherness and familiarity with the thing is death to a sense of the holy and the sacred about it. Yeah, again, if it's cooking your toast, it's hard to find the divine in it. Of course, then again, I often think about how that's a lot of what we do on this podcast is exactly challenging that impulse. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Rediscovering what, the divine. Exactly. Like I, I often want to take a thing that's familiar and make it strange again. Yeah. Uh, to revisit something that we, we might think of as being utterly mundane and rediscover what's fascinating and very unsettling and weird about it. Absolutely. So maybe in these episodes we've helped you, uh, find something strange and fascinating about that very force that cooks your ego waffles. <laughs> Hopefully so. This yeah. episode not paid for by ego. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it. Um, the, the, the role of the transformer is complete. Um, the spiritual has become the mundane. And uh, if you want to check out more about this topic, be sure to check out the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We'll include links to related content, links out to that uh, House of Forks article about electricity, to uh, some of the sources we've uh, used in researching the episodes as well. Uh, and you'll also find other podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts. You'll find videos. You'll find links out to our social media accounts, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. Uh, on Tumblr, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And hey, Hey, wherever you listen to us, if you listen to us at, on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or any of the, 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 the really cool platforms that are rolling out seemingly every week, be sure to give us a little love there if, if they have uh, the ability for you to do that, if they have some sort of rating system, review system. Uh, give us some love. It helps support the podcast. Yeah, it's the easiest way for you to help the show. And if you want to get in touch with us with any feedback about this episode or other recent episodes or give us your favorite story or anecdote from the weird history of electricity, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs> <laughs>